Welcome to Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. I'm Wendy Hobbs. Today we're talking to Richard Ivany, co-owner of Exigent Endeavours, about electric vehicle charging and how it relates to new buildings. Richard, what do you do at Exigent? So, uh, I work in the smart network car charger space, and essentially I work as a consultant to help organizations implement those kinds of technologies in their, their future builds. And the majority of what I do is education for different types of organizations on where the technology currently is at, how it can benefit them, and how best to implement it with uh, relation to funding opportunities, technologies that are available, and different kinds of use cases. What's the breadth of tech available for EV charging? Yeah, as far as like what the the breadth of I guess the technologies that are available, um, I I think one of the biggest things that I get hit with on a regular basis is that most people's understanding of what car charging is is similar to what you might think of as like a block heater. So okay, you plug it into a wall, it plugs into my car. I don't really know what happens, and then poof, my car charger starts working, and now I can drive my car. Um, those technologies certainly exist. We would call those like dumb chargers or non-network chargers. Uh, the breadth of what we're talking about are like the, the opposite side of the coin. You would call them smart chargers or network car charging solutions. Uh, the technical term is electric vehicle supply equipment. And what those will do is, well, they'll also charge a car. That's kind of the start of the conversation, but they'll also provide uh, a lot of the reports uh, the ability to lock stations to specific individuals, the ability to bill for them. Uh, there's marketing capabilities. Um, different kinds of chargers can charge at different rates. So, for example, when I talked about uh, the first, second, and third levels of charging, the the kind of block heater type technology, we would call that a, a level one charger. So level one is anything that plugs into a standard outlet, similar to what you would plug your laptop into. Uh, and so you would plug that into the wall, go into your car, and you get maybe eight to 10 kilometers of range per hour on those kinds of technologies. We don't really work in that space because it's it's not really commercially viable. I mean, if you want to plug that into your single detached home, you want to plug for 12 hours a day on your own power supply, you can do that. But when you're looking at large scale implementations, so multifamily buildings, airports, universities, public charging, that kind of thing, you're looking at level two or above. So level two kind of plugs into the same thing that your, your dryer would plug into, the 208 volt or 240 volt uh, plug. And those ones will charge about 40 kilometers of range per hour. Uh, and then you go into the, the level three chargers. Those are DC fast chargers. And those can go from anywhere from 100 kilometers an hour to 1,000 kilometers of an hour of charging. So yeah, it kind of depends on the use case. Uh, my specialty is more so with development companies who are looking to build um, those into new developments. So specifically multifamily buildings. Uh, there's some requirements in BC, for example, that every single new unit for residential at this point needs uh, a car charger of level two or above in all new residential units. And so it's 
it's kind of thrown a, co a curveball into development on like how do you manage that kind of power supply? Uh, how do you track it? How do you bill for it accurately? Who pays for it? Uh, all these kinds of questions are coming up. And so what we do it, uh, is help organizations kind of navigate those questions so that they can implement those technologies in their new builds. A couple of questions. Can existing infrastructure handle the demands of the chargers? And what does adding chargers look like at the building level? Sure. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll address your first question first there, I guess, on how can like the utility side of things handle that power output? And there's a few different ways that they're going about it these days. Um, a few different organizations that we've been speaking with the last few years have basically done like studies. So they'll do like an incentive. Uh, please buy some sort of car charger, say a level two charger. Um, and uh, what they'll do is they'll kind of buy a car charger for somebody in exchange for the information that comes on the back end of a smart charger, like the reporting side of things on what does that mean for the grid? So if you have, uh, say, for one um, one incentive that went in, they went and bought in uh, like $1,100 towards the installation of a, a single detached home car charger. I think they sent out 2,000 of those over the course of a couple of years, and now they've just been running modeling and reports on what's that doing to the grid. And I've heard a, a lot of different people say, well, if everyone bought a car right now and plugged in all at once, uh, that would overload like the whole entire transmission system. And while that might be true, uh, in certain very specific scenarios, the, the technology is there to help mitigate those issues. So there's load management, for example, uh, where that would like split the power supply coming from one, um, one circuit, for example, in a multifamily building and split it between up to say a, a four to one ratio. So one circuit powers four chargers. Uh, there's technology where that's going up to an eight to one ratio. There's also uh, time of use charging. So if everyone drove their car until say, sorry, if everyone got home at five o'clock and plugged into their charger at that exact moment in time, yeah, that would definitely be an issue. However, with the technology that we have available, you can set time of use. So if you want to charge at, say, 9 p.m. to midnight, you can simply plug your car in when you get home and then with the app on the smart technology, set it to charge at that point in time. And one of the, the tools that utilities are going to be doing is providing incentives for uh, charging at off-peak hours, as well as, uh, what would you call that? Like the opposite of an incentive, like a, they call it a carrot and a stick. So they'd have a stick for if you're charging at peak hours, then you pay way more for your power than you would at off-peak. And so they're kind of hitting it on both sides of things. And as well, a lot of the charging that is gonna be done is gonna be done while people are asleep. So I'm not too sure how familiar you are with kind of how the power output goes in a, a, a typical scenario, but they don't really shut down power plants, or hydro plants or coal power plants or whatever that's going to be. They produce electricity throughout the entire day. And then at nighttime, they kind of just get rid of it one way or another, either selling it off to different uh, loca locations or kind of just allowing it to dissipate. Um, into the into the grid without 
any profits on that. So if you transfer a whole bunch of people to nighttime charging, then they can use that power supply a lot more efficiently uh, than just having it spike during the day and then disappear overnight. You know, kind of level that grid out so that everyone can charge when they need to. Uh, as far as uh, smaller scale um, on like a commercial side of things. Yeah, the, the power management systems that are coming down the line with those technologies just allow you to use way more chargers with the same power supply um, rather than having to give like dedicated power to each individual charger. And that'll probably be another question on just how much power does each person need to be able to charge their car? The answer to that question is that it's typically about a 40 kilometer range just to kind of do the daily commute. And so if you're only really looking at 40, I always double it for the sake of argument, say 80 kilometers a day of, of usage, then even at a, a low charging rate of say 10 kilometers an hour, uh, which is kind of the result of a, a four to one power management ratio, then you only need an eight hour charge on an ongoing basis per day to top your car back up to like a full battery similar to your cell phone. So plugging in at say six o'clock, eight hours from then is two in the morning. You still have quite a lot of time for everybody to really take advantage of that supply and make sure their car is topped up on a daily basis. Knowing that Canadians like to and often need to drive hours to see each other, how will charging affect that sort of travel? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the I guess the biggest thing on that one is that uh, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle as far as technology goes that are are all kind of gunning for the same answers here. So you have the EV manufacturers coming through, and that's almost all car manufacturers at this point. And uh, to your previous point, it's not that there's not going to be any more internal combustion engine vehicles on the road by 2035. It's that all new car sales are going to be zero emission vehicles. So while all new car sales at that point, 2035, are then going to be either like hydrogen or fully electric, all the other ones that are still on the road are still going to be driving um, for however long it takes for that full transition to happen. So it's not like uh, on 2035, January 1st, they snap a button and then all cars that are uh, emitting greenhouse gases are gone. It's just they're not going to be making any more of them. So there is going to be a slow transition on that one. Um, the car side, like I said, there's a lot of ma manufacturers that are kind of going all in on that. Uh, on the infrastructure side, it's yeah, it's kind of a paradigm shift, uh, whereas before it was more just fuel providers are providing fuel for everybody. So you have the, the petrol cans, the shells, the, the huskies, uh, they're all have their gas stations and they have that model. Um, if you look at some of them, they're they're transitioning from we're like gas suppliers to just fuel suppliers, whatever that happens to mean. So a lot of companies are getting into hydrogen. A lot of companies are getting into diesel or biomass or uh, electric vehicle charging. And not only that, but because of how this technology works, it's not going to be restricted to just fuel suppliers anymore. So. Uh, we're talking to different organizations who are in real estate, but also want to go into um, being fuel providers. So if you go to like Richmond Center, for example, uh, in the lower mainland, there's malls that just have giant booths of car charging. Either that's Tesla or ChargePoint or Flow or some other manufacturer of these kinds of technologies. 
there's there's quite a big business case for kind of any organization that owns and operates any piece of land to go into this space. So now it's not just the the small five or six organizations that are providing places for people to go. It's anyone has that ability. And then you look at funding opportunities, for example, through Natural Resources Canada. They have several programs that they've been running for the last few years uh, where they're in basically backing any kind of organization that wants to take the next step and provide this infrastructure uh, up to 50% of project costs to be able to do those kinds of things. Uh, so as far as long distance trips go, uh, it's a different mentality you have to look at for cars. Uh, right now, it's fill up your car with gas and then ride that tank all the way down to E and then keep riding it as far past that E as you'll humanly be able to go. And then hope for the best that you don't run out of gas, find a gas station, fill up. Uh, that's how it's been for many decades. The, the mentality of the EV driver is uh, more planning first rather than just the drive. Um, so within like a, an electric vehicle, uh, you have basically an onboard computer and even some manufacturers have transitioned from, oh, we're just building an electric car to we're building a computer powered by electricity on wheels. And so within that technology, there's there's maps that can do all sorts of uh, mapping for you. Um, you can go from point A to point B to point C and plug in what kind of vehicle you have, what the range is, uh, and it'll tell you where you need to stop, typically a fast charger kind of thing, uh, how long you'll need to stop for uh, to be able to make that trip. So if you're going to the very east of Saskatchewan from Calgary, let's call that an eight hour drive, and you only have three hours of charge in your vehicle, uh, the technology is actually getting to the point where you can charge that up in less than half an hour. I don't know, how many stops do you have to do in an eight hour drive to make sure your legs don't fall asleep? Say three, maybe three half an hour stops. And so if each one of those gets you up back up to 80%, uh, that's how that drive is happening at this point. It's just map where that stop's going to be. Stop at, uh, say, a Petrocan that's got their cross Canada network. Um, stop for a coffee, a bathroom break, maybe get a, a whatever from that store, and then hop back in and drive the next 250, 300 kilometers, and then wash, rinse, and repeat. It's also coming down to what kind of technology they're putting into the actual cars. Uh, since it's still kind of in its its first stage of development for EVs, as far as mass adoption goes, the battery packs on these vehicles are relatively small. So if you look at like a Nissan Leaf, for example, um, it or like a Kia Soul, it tops out at like 120 kilometers of range. It's more of a commuter car. If you had a, a Kia Soul, you wouldn't drive that from Calgary to Saskatchewan and expect to do it in an eight hour drive. Um, I think a lot of people are still going to have their internal combustion engines for those trips until the battery packs get to the point where that's feasible. Like you look at Tesla's and they have five, 600 kilometer ranges at this point. Uh, and a lot of those kinds of technologies are getting into a lot more different manufacturers. And so once the batteries start growing to the point where those long distance trips are feasible, uh, you'll see a lot more of those. And then alongside that progression there's going to be the technology that ramps up and you'll have a lot of different site hosts that are putting in fast charge stations it sounds like there are two different charging solutions one for shorter distances and one for longer distances would would that be accurate yeah i would say that's that's accurate i guess you have the 
the, the plug-in hybrids as well, or just the hybrid cars, and those are more designed specifically for commutes. Um, we're looking at like uh, the the plug-in hybrid of Outlander from Mitsubishi, and it's got I think it's a 46 kilometer range on battery, uh, and then the whole tank with the assistance of the uh, electronic motors goes up to about a thousand kilometers of range with also gas. So that's more. Uh, your daily back and forth to work. That's all that's all set up and good to go. So you park your car at work, top that back up, drive back home, top that up at home, back and forth. And then when you need that extra range, uh, the motor kicks in for uh, gas and takes you the rest of the way. Of course, that's not really a long term solution. It's kind of an interim step between uh, full internal combustion and then full electric. But uh, I guess you have to start somewhere. And so that's where a lot of the the technologies are and then once people get really used to the whole battery electric uh, full battery electric system then they'll demand more of it and that's kind of what we're seeing in in bc right now you look at vancouver and it's uh one of the top i believe it is the highest uh, uptake of evs in north america i think we clicked over something like 11 percent um all new car sales in vancouver were electric last year and then you look into a place like Alberta and they're hovering around one or 2%. So manufacturers are still catering to that other 98% at this point. But once that starts clicking over to mass adoption, then you're gonna probably see a lot more manufacturers just going all in on those technologies. Who do you think should or will take on responsibility for the charging infrastructure? Who's gonna put the buy-in first and why should they? I mean, if you kind of just hold out as like a, a last company that's going to get onto that train then you let everybody else deal with all the, the the hiccups of the start of an industry and kind of hop in when it's all done that's one of the biggest things that i i kind of do on a daily basis is just help educate people not only where the technology has come from but where it's going and what's available today i think a lot of people really like these brand new technologies like you look at tesla's uh autonomous driving vehicles and uh, they're like their dog mode where you have a dog in the car, you push a button and your dog gets to be all nice and toasty warm while they're just sitting there. Uh, a lot of these kinds of technologies are are really flashy. There's a whole bunch of funding opportunities actually from different levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, that are trying to answer that question right off the bat and saying, okay, well, if we hatch that egg, maybe you guys can get some chickens out of there. Um, and so the federal government has, in the multi-millions of dollars, I'll say, put up funding so that people kind of grasp these technologies and take it forward. And I think that's what is necessary. You look at any kind of uh, paradigm shifting new technology, uh, there's the early adopter stage, uh, and then you get into just the S-curve of how all that works. And until that mass adoption happens, it doesn't really take off electric vehicles and all the other ancillary infrastructure and um, industry that goes along with it are unfortunately not immune to those same kind of systems. So you look at the federal government's zero emission vehicle infrastructure program that's running for the, it's going into its fifth year right now, and they're pledging up to 50% of project costs to take would-be organizations that wanna get onto these kinds of technologies and saying, okay, well, we'll put up our half and then through that, uh, you're going to stand out as a developer or as a, as a 
a retail location or whatever that happens to be. And now you're going to start drawing people who can afford electric vehicles to your location or to your building, whereas uh, you wouldn't have likely put up 100% of the cost yourself to be able to make yourself stand out to that to that level. So on the federal side, they're putting up a lot of funds to be able to help people with that transition. Uh, there's a few different provincial ones, depending on what province you're looking at as well. There's even municipal ones where they'll say, uh, in a commercial setting or multifamily setting or single detached, please put in this infrastructure so that we can speed up this transition. So I think it's one of those things where all different parts of the, the entire industry from government to private entities, to public, to manufacturers, they all kind of have to dive into this head first to be able to propel it forward. Um, and at the end of the day, I think what it comes down to is uh, just the knowledge base of the general public on where this technology is and where it's going. We've done quite a few different info sessions, and that's one of our next plans is to kind of drive this message across Canada of these are the technologies that are here today. Literally drive it up to people's front doors and say, here's where this technology can take you. Um, we came from, say, BC and we're going to Nova Scotia in an EV because it can be done with the, to the technology of today and the infrastructure that currently exists. Uh, obviously, there's more work to do, but I think the biggest part is just dispelling myths. Like, uh, for example, people always say, well, where's that power going to come from? Like, okay, well, if you look at electricity, it doesn't matter where it's being produced or what it's being produced from, it still goes into the car. So a lot of people are saying, well, we're going to have to transition out of oil to be able to power these vehicles, for example. Um, that transition will come, I think. But in the meantime, those power plants are still producing electricity and that electricity can still go into the vehicle, uh, similar to just how they make current gasoline vehicles powered by a different process in that whole supply chain. So if you take it from bucket A and put it into a car, or bucket B and put it into a car, or bucket C, uh, it's still driving transportation. It's just a, a different mindset. And uh, I, I think the, the biggest part is that a lot of people don't really like change. However, uh, humanity is really good at adapting to things. So hopefully we can make that uh, adaptation before it becomes required rather than right now just encouraged. What would be the benefit to a developer to create charging infrastructure on something like a multi-unit development? Sure, yeah, well, um, it kind of depends on the use case at this point, uh, but for the biggest incentive for developers at this point that aren't mandated to install this kind of infrastructure, but are still looking at it, uh, there's quite a few different benefits to it. So first of all, there's the green conversation. So people are aware that this transition is happening regardless of uh, opinions. I mean, you can look at the, the growth curves of EVs uh, and sales, uh, and it's it's exponentially growing across the board, even if it is just in jurisdictions at this point that don't really have an uptick, it's still exponentially growing even in those situations. So regardless of where you're going, there are EV drivers and those EV drivers are looking at this kind of technology no longer as just a, a nice to have amenity. It's essential infrastructure at this point, similar to how you look at um, 
like Wi-Fi connections in a hotel or something like that. 10, 15 years ago, it's like, oh, wow, this hotel has Wi-Fi. That's great. I'm, I'm on the road. I, I want to do some business. I really need that Wi-Fi connection. So I'm going to pick that hotel because it has Wi-Fi rather than the one across the street that doesn't have Wi-Fi. And that's where I'm going to spend my dollars because I need that connection. Similar to that in the, the EV space um, for multifamily buildings, for example, if you have your Tesla or you have your, your Nissan Leaf or whatever that's going to be, where you're planning on getting one in the next handful of years, you're going to look at buildings that have EV charging as an essential service that you need in your building, right up there with, um, I don't know, an indoor parkade. Like, oh, there's street parking only. Well, okay, well, that doesn't really check a box anymore. So for those buildings that are going to start moving in that direction, you now become a destination rather than an option. So when people are looking at where they want to buy in, they're going to have their 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 nice to haves and their must haves to be able to move into a place. And if you have to walk 5, 10, 15 blocks to the nearest car charger or drive, I suppose, with your EV, that's that might be a deal breaker in whether or not you choose one building or, or the other, similar to uh, like a grocery store. If you're uh, have to pick up groceries and you have grocery store A, B, or C, and only C has car charging. Well, your map in your car is going to tell you grocery store C has infrastructure for your car. And since it's pretty well the same as far as costs go, depending on where you're going to go for your groceries, you might as well choose the one that's going to be able to provide that amenity to charge your car. And now you start attracting those vehicles, uh, which Typically, it's it's a much more expensive vehicle than an internal combustion engine. So you're attracting people who typically have more resources to be able to spend. And you could even uh, there's a term called dwell time. So if you're there, uh, they've done studies where having somebody in your store for increasingly more minutes equals more spending from that individual. So if they're sitting there and they have their app in their hand, it says you need to stay here for an additional 35 minutes to charge your car to the point that you want it to. They're just going to find something to do. Either that's get another coffee or spend a couple more dollars at the grocery store or whatever that happens to be while they're waiting for their car to charge rather than, OK, I'm done now. I can just simply leave, go into my car and drive away and I'll top up my, my gas tank when I need it to. Similar with multifamily buildings, if they can charge their car there, then they're going to be willing to spend that extra uh, that extra funds on getting that infrastructure in their building rather than just simply passing over and going to some other building that doesn't have it. So th those are a few of the the incentives on that one. Like I said at the beginning as well, there's also the, the green conversation of now you can show people that you're you're green minded as an organization. Uh, you're kind of you're willing to take the plunge into that technology where most developers aren't. And now that gives you that extra card in your back pocket of, OK, well, all things being equal, developer A uh, versus developer B is willing to put their money where their mouth is and put in the infrastructure, even though they don't have to. And they're doing that for multiple reasons for the green conversation, as well as to attract those drivers to that developer. Earlier, you mentioned that the vehicles will be smarter than internal combustion vehicles. How does the smart element play into the usefulness of the cars? Sure. Yeah, I can expand on that. Um, how smart charging works compared to 
non-networked or dumb charging, we call it. Uh, there's a few different use cases in the in the industry at this point. I, I'm going to refrain from saying any names of manufacturers on that end of things, but there are manufacturers who uh, kind of sell the the station to property owner, and now that property owner is the owner of that asset, and then with that asset, they can kind of set whatever policies they want. So, for example, if you have, I'll use numbers from BC, for example, um, the I think the average cost for electricity right now is nine cents per kilowatt hour. That's like the base rate. It can go up from there for demand charges. Um, and most vehicles can accept uh, like a 6.6 .6 kilowatts per hour on a charge. So that leads to about a 60, maybe 70 cents per hour cost for the electricity. And then with these technologies, you can set the rates to kind of whatever you want. Right now, there's a, a legal impediment to being able to charge for the kilowatts that are actually coming out of the station. So what that kind of translates to is uh, right now from Weights and Measures Canada, you can only charge for the amount of time somebody's specifically at a station rather than what's coming out of it. So if, like if you're at a gas station, you could charge for somebody parked in front of the gas tank for five minutes, for example, um, rather than the amount of gas that's being doled out into the vehicle. The technology can actually charge for those kilowatts. It's just legally at this moment in Canada, you can't. So as far as the smart technology goes, what we're doing or what we're seeing right now is you have organizations that set a say a dollar an hour cost. And then while you're parked there, it'll dole out the power for whatever output that station can do. And then kind of a tap and pay model uh, where you just simply tap your credit card or your Apple Pay, Google Pay, that kind of thing and it'll charge you for that for that amount of time that you're there. In the level two space, that's being charged on an hourly basis. In the level three or direct, um, like the fast charging technology, that's being charged on a per minute basis. So it changes on which municipality or district you're in. But yeah, the, the unit owner will set that policy and then be able to track each individual who comes in uh, with like their specific uh, charging account, for example, and say, okay, driver A charged for say, three hours, we'll deduct $3 from their, their uh, account, and then we will basically send them a bill via, uh, via email or just on their account, and off they go. Uh, that's one aspect of it. Uh, another aspect is what you call an idle charging fee. So let's say for the sake of argument, you have four stalls in a grocery store parking lot and somebody comes in at 10 o'clock, they charge for two hours and then after two hours, their car is full, but they're still parked there. Uh, with these technologies, you can set an idle charging fee so that uh, after some amount of time or some amount of charge, there is an additional little charge to just leave your car there. So after the two hours, every hour thereafter, there's an additional, say, $5 an hour to basically incentivize you to move your car and make room for somebody else to come through. Uh, so that's another income stream on there. We're seeing some uh, some possibility as well on like marketing collaborations. There's like video screens on some of these stations where you can uh, say, oh, there's a coffee shop nearby that wants to participate in this. And uh, for every 10 charges, say, uh, you'll get a free coffee or something like that. Um, so that's another use case. If you look at a different kind of model, what a lot of places are doing are they'll rent you the car charger itself 
and then it's owned and operated by the manufacturer. And you basically can say now to people, oh, we have this specific kind of charger on our location and that charger just pays the, the site owner like an ongoing monthly, um, whatever you want to call it, stipend or just payment to have that charger on their property. And then the manufacturer takes care of all the, the, the costs of the electricity, the maintenance, um, all that kind of thing. So it, again, it depends what kind of use case you're looking for, either if it's a, a rental of an asset that you just claim that you have on your property, or if you actually want to own that asset and manage it long term and kind of get all the benefits of that ownership. Can you talk a little bit more about the diagnostics in smart technology vehicles? The smart charging technology, uh, and it's progressing more and more as the new iterations of these stations come through. But yeah, they can, I don't want to say self-diagnose, but there's definitely some software there that keeps track of itself. And then should uh, should something go down or something misfire for whatever reason or a fault of some kind, it'll ping the, the network and it'll say, hi, uh, charger 15 or whatever seems to have an issue. And then with that, there's a lot of remote diagnostics that can happen. And so they'll see what they can do remotely. And if they can, it's a reset or send over an update or whatever that happens to be. If that fixes it, great. Uh, if not, the, the manufacturer will get that information and then basically send out a truck roll and do an assessment there. If it can be done right off the bat, great. If not, um, and it needs more parts or something, then when that person is out there diagnosing the station, they simply connect with the manufacturer and say, okay, this part is whatever it happens to be. Maybe it got like a, a cord cut or something or somebody backed into it or whatever that happens to be. And that's one of the biggest benefits of a smart charger versus a dumb charger where uh, that communication with a network and people who are monitoring that network can uh, proactively do maintenance on it versus a, a, a dumb station where somebody actually has to physically be standing in front of it and say, oh, look, there's a, a part missing or a part that's broken. And then now they have to start from there and find where that manufacturer is going to be and figure out where to ship it. And there's just no communication back and forth between the manufacturer and the station itself. So that's a, a large uh, benefit of having a, a, a smart charger rather than a dumb one. Where can people get more information on charging technology? I think one of my go-tos right now is there's a website called pluginbc.ca. Uh, that's run through the Fraser Basin Council. Uh, they're kind of like a, a manufacturer agnostic website uh, organization, I guess you could say, that provides pretty much like an EV 101. So that'll go over like the uh, available cars that are uh, currently being sold in Canada, uh, a lot of the information on charging, um, and they can give a lot of different resources there. Even just a simple Google search on either EV cars available in Canada or what do I need to know about electric vehicle car charging, that kind of thing. There's a lot of government websites as well from BC. There's like the BC Hydro sites. And uh, I know there's getting to be quite a lot of information just across the, the country from different um, utility providers. Uh, and as well, if you wanted to send out a, an email to myself or whatever, uh, I'd be happy to respond and point you in the right direction. What's the most important aspect of advocacy for electric vehicles for you? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things uh, that I'm kind of advocating for in the industry is just information and knowledge about the industry in general. A lot of people have a lot of opinions and founded or unfounded. I think a lot of that can be answered with simply taking the plunge and say going for a test drive or rather than having your opinion and then having it not founded on your own experience, go and check the cars out. Go and talk to people uh, who drive them and enjoy them. Uh, there's electric vehicle associations across the country. There's a federal one. Um, uh, yeah, in BC, there's like the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Uh, those are all over, again, across the country. And if you really want to dispel some myths or get some questions answered, you can reach out to people who actually own and operate these kinds of vehicles already. And I have yet to meet an EV driver that doesn't really enjoy that decision versus going with another ICE vehicle. So yeah, for anyone who's listening, just say, go do some research, find a car, get in it, uh, put the pedal to the metal and see what kind of emotion flows through you on, okay, well, this is actually a lot cooler than I thought. And I think it's one of those things where when enough people really have that uh, EV experience, that's where it's going to really start cascading rather than just people saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that kind of technology. It's nothing for me. It's it's not going to work. Well, until it works, it's it's not going to work. And it's already been working in BC. Uh, you can look at all sorts of stats on how fast that adoption is coming. Uh, you can even look into places like Norway, and they've had more than 50% of new car sales were EV last year. Yeah, it's it's exciting technology and it's revolutionary, I would say. And so you can either be on the, the side that wants to hold on to the past or be on the side that wants to take forward to the future. Thank you to Richard Ivany for joining us today to talk about electric vehicle charging infrastructure. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.